We now have access to more information at our fingertips than ever before. YouTube videos, podcasts, audiobooks, all of these forms of media have allowed us to consume information faster than ever at any time, anywhere. But we still face the challenge of retaining this information. In this episode, we will break down scientifically proven methods to retain more information and improve recall. Hi, my name's Sam Breakgear and you're listening to Brains Bite Back, your podcast exploring the intersection between psychology and technology. We are joined by two memory specialists. The first is the Chief Happiness Officer at Happy Brain Science, a company that strives to improve happiness for professionals and organizations using neuroscience, Scott Crabtree. Scott specializes in the science of learning, memory, and happiness. He shares with us the reason why we forget what we are looking for when passing from one room to another, why emotions are important to recall information, and how chocolate can help with memory. In addition to Scott, we're also joined by Marissa Blaschko, a polygot that speaks six languages and the founder of the website Relearn a Language. And just in case you're not familiar with the term polygot, don't be embarrassed. It's a term for someone who knows and is able to use several languages or more. From our discussion with Marissa, you will learn the two secret weapons of polyglots, some of the most outdated myths about language learning that annoy her the most, and how you can create your own memory palace to store more information. Additionally, Marissa also explains what are memory championships and how listeners can apply the techniques of champions in their own lives. Now, if you like this episode, some previous episodes you might enjoy are Brain Plasticity, How Technology, Environments and Language Change Our Brains, Heuristics, How Our Mental Shortcuts Can Mislead Us, and Excern Scientist on Leveraging AI to Accelerate Language Learning. And just to give you a sneak peek at some upcoming episodes we have in the next few weeks, we'll be taking a look at a creative agency founded by stand-up comedians, improv artists, actors and musicians that focuses on using fun, based on neuroscience research to produce new ideas for content creation. Following this, we will explore how long it will be before we never have to drive again thanks to autonomous vehicles and how insurance companies, technology and consumer psychology will influence this timeline. These topics are all coming up on Brains Bite Back, so be sure to subscribe. But for now, let's explore memory, recall and new languages. Enjoy. Scott, let's uh, kick off by you telling our listeners who you are and a little bit about your background in the science of learning and memory, please. So my name is Scott Crabtree. My current title is Chief Happiness Officer because I founded my own company, so I get to call myself whatever I want. My company is Happy Brain Science, and our mission is to teach the science of happiness and employee engagement at work. And so if we wanna teach people that, we need people to remember what we teach. And so along the way, I have become a passionate student and teacher of the science of learning and memory as well. All of this extends the degree I got from Vassar College in cognitive science. Awesome. I love the name you've chosen there. That's a a fantastic benefit, like you said, of starting your own company. I know someone that is the CEO of theirs and they're like chief storyteller at the company. So. Yeah, I love that creativity there. So we obviously spoke a little bit before the call today. And before our call, you mentioned a number of tactics to improve memory and retention. And I want to go over them. So firstly, can you tell me how the foods we eat impact our ability to retain information? Yes. So I like to tell my audiences that neuroscience has discovered something truly remarkable. The brain is in the body. Okay, I'm a dad. I make really bad dad jokes. My daughters like to chant dad joke, bad joke, and you can too, Sam. But anyway, uh, so the brain is in the body. So how we take care of our body helps us take care of our brain. And as you and maybe some of your listeners know, there are certain foods that are essentially good brain foods. And specific studies have found that those foods help the brain remember. So which foods are we talking about? Generally speaking, foods high in antioxidants are a great idea. So that includes berries, all kinds of berries pretty much, tea in particular, green tea, and yes, good news for all of us, chocolate, especially dark chocolate is high in antioxidants. So Healthy food in general, and very specifically foods that are high in antioxidants have been shown to boost our ability to remember. Fantastic. I think I've also heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if you're 
sure about this or not, but uh, fish, like uh, like the fat oils from fish, like omega-3 is supposed to be oh, yeah. good uh, when it comes to brain food, Ab- right? Absolutely. And look, I'm, I'm not anyone's nutritionist, but as I understand the science, it's always better to get those nutrients straight from the food. So I happen to take fish oil because I don't eat fish every day. But when I do get to eat fish, that's even better. So salmon is a particularly uh, rich food for those uh, antioxidants and omega acids that that help our brain. Uh, Yes, fish is also on the list. Thank you for reminding me. That's okay. I only know because my parents take those supplements religiously. And I remember yeah. as a kid, I was always like, why, why are you taking that? You don't need that. I was like, that doesn't do anything, does it? I was like, I thought it was just like pseudoscience. But as I've grown older, I'm now like, actually, my parents were right. <laughs> well, it's good to be skeptical, Sam, because there is a lot of pseudoscience out there about supplements and mm. whatnot. So very little has been proven about supplements. But my doctor told me to take fish oil. I take it and everything I do, Sam, is grounded in science. I try to give as little of my own opinion as possible. I spent over six years working at Intel and the former CEO of Intel, Andy Grove, had a quote that we often repeated in meetings and hallways at Intel. That quote is, everyone has an opinion. Some people have data. <laughs> so it's like, okay, I'm coming with the data. So I trust the scientific process more than I trust anyone's gut feeling or opinion. And so I'm not a scientist, to be clear. I I did get a a degree in cognitive science, but I am a passionate student and teacher of science and, and everything I'm telling you and I tell my coaching clients and speaking audiences is grounded in high quality peer reviewed science. Fantastic. Well, you're the exact guest that we want on this show. And for my next question, Uh, Anyone that listens to this show knows that I'm a big fan of meditation. Uh, So I'd love to know, how can meditation help with recall? One of my favorite topics. I love meditation. I don't mean to be self-promotional here, but I want to connect this to an idea. I have a, a meditation workshop that I call, quote, empower your inner CEO with mindfulness. Why inner CEO? Because meditation adds neurons to the brain. So it's a wonderful tool to enhance your brain. And in particular, it adds neurons to the part of our brain that I call your inner CEO because it's responsible for executive functioning. And that's your prefrontal cortex. Very loosely speaking, behind your forehead is your prefrontal cortex. And that's involved with various things, including directing attention, which is a prerequisite for learning and memory. And it, and it enhances pathways between that, quote, inner CEO and our limbic systems, whose job it is, among other things, to get really upset and, and trigger fight or flight, which is a horrible thing for memory. So those who meditate improve their inner CEO's ability to manage the rest of the brain, if you will. We can see pathways thicken and enhance running from that logical command center that directs attention and is involved with memory to that emotional system that is also involved with memory, but can be both useful and unhelpful as we will come back to later, I believe. So meditation is just fantastic for your brain. Look, in today's society, a lot of people want a quick fix. Meditation is not a quick fix, but I have had an almost daily meditation practice for over a decade now, and there's zero doubt in my mind, based on my experience and the solid peer-reviewed science, it will change your brain for the better. Lots of studies are being done about mindfulness. It's a, it's a relatively new field of science, but people like Dr. Richard Davidson have, has been leading research on the many benefits that mindfulness brings us. And for those who don't know, they probably do know because they're listening to you, but for people who aren't familiar with meditation, my analogy is that meditation is a mindfulness workout. So you can be physically active without working out, but if you get a workout, you're definitely being physically active. It's possible to be mindful without meditating. You can just be aware of the present moment with as little judgment as possible, completely focused. But if you sit down and meditate or walk and meditate, you're definitely being mindful. So I hope everyone out there can get more moments of mindfulness, even in the busiest of work days, because among the many other benefits that are shown to come with meditation, one of them is a boost to our ability to store and recall information. Yeah, definitely. What you mentioned there kind of reflects what I've seen. It seems like only good things are coming from meditation. I suppose the hard part is just being disciplined enough to implement it in your daily life. 
Well, if I can jump in really yeah, yeah, quickly there, it. Sam, because this is so important, I think. This is one of my favorite topics, meditation. Another brilliant scientist named Barbara Fredrickson did a very clever study. I'll try to keep this short, but very clever study where she gave a bunch of people in the study an iPod with a couple kinds of meditation on them. What's called loving kindness meditation, you may be familiar with, and mindfulness of breathing meditation. And they said, we're, we're gonna give you these for two weeks and then we want you to answer this questionnaire. And then two weeks after the experiment ends, we're gonna have this party, we'll bring pizza and beverages and we'll collect the iPods and thank you. And the clever part of the experiment was what they were really tracking was how much did people use those iPods to meditate after the experiment was quote over, not really over, but in the two weeks after they said, okay, you're done, how many people went back to that iPod and meditated? Well, those who practice loving kindness meditation meditated more. So Barbara Fredrickson says, I, I had the pleasure of seeing her speak at an international positive psychology conference. She said, Nike's just do it should be just enjoy it if you want to adopt a new behavior. So for those looking to get into meditation, look, this might sound strange when I say loving kindness or it's Sanskrit name meta meditation, but basically you're trying to nurture positive emotions towards other people and yourself. And if you do it well, it can be one of the most pleasant experiences you've ever had in your life. And that will keep you coming back for more meditation. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I've only had, well, very positive experiences myself. And I kind of want to touch on our next topic, which is kind of similar because you mentioned it a little bit. It revolves around discipline, but exercise, how does exercise impact our memory? So bodies in motion have brains that produce more BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which long scientific nerdy, nerdy story short, you can think of as learning aid for the brain. We needed to remember, as human beings in the wilderness, so to speak, we needed to remember in particular when we were in a new area, right? So if you and I are camped out with our family and community of people and we're in the valley we're always in, well, we know where the stream is, we know where the bear's cave is, and it's not as life essential that we learn new things as when we leave that valley and go outside and like, ah, there's a cougar at the top of that mountain, stay away from the top of that mountain, we need to remember that, right? So motion seems to generate our ability to remember more. So I hope some people listening to this are working out while they listen to it. When I want to really remember a new book, I will get it as an audiobook and I will listen to it while running. So physical exercise, fantastic for our minds and our moods, by the way. This is an aside, but again, as you alluded to, Sam, the trick with exercise is not knowing it's good for us, it's doing it, right? So the thing that got me to go from an occasional exerciser to a regular exerciser is coming across the science that exercise is not only good for our physical health, it's good for our mental health, happiness, cognition, and memory. I am not anyone's mental health professional, but peer-reviewed science shows that exercise is as effective as antidepressants in treating moderate depression in the long run. It boosts cognition. Kids who get exercise get higher grades. People who walk right before a test score higher on the test. So exercise is just a wonderful win-win that'll boost your body, brain, memory, and mood. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm definitely a, a big advocate for, for exercise. In fact, you mentioning the audiobooks kind of highlights one of my real loves for podcasts really um, yeah. because I personally love to do yoga I'll do like hours of yoga and stretching to, nice. to podcasts and yeah it's one of the things which I love about audiobooks and podcasts the ability to multitask is so easy and yep. you can just absorb new information or just simply be entertained yep now the rest of what you listed might need some further explanation because it's not as clear-cut as the other points that we've gone over as it seems there's some unconventional tactics you use to improve memory here. So firstly, you stated testing causes learning. What is that and how does it work? So basically, I am not trying to stir up the ever-present debate about standardized testing for kids in schools. Let's just put that aside yeah. right there. There's various views on that. I'm not trying to get into that debate. What I will say is based on solid peer-reviewed science for at least certain kinds of learning, testing causes learning. So the 
scientists theorize that what happens is information goes into the brain, right? Information going into the brain is not the problem, right? When we can't remember something, it's one of two problems. One, we didn't store that information. We just kept it in short-term memory and let it leave a minute or two later. That's one problem. And the other problem is recalling that information, finding that information. I'm sure everybody listening to this has had that experience of like, who's that, who's that actress in Pretty Woman? Uh, what's her name? Uh, Julia Roberts, right? You've got the information. It's finding it's, that's the problem, mm -hmm. right? So what happens when we test ourselves? Suppose somebody tests themselves right now and says, okay, what has this Scott Crabtree guy from Happy Brain Science said so far about memory? Just testing yourself in that way signals the brain oh, that information that just went in is going to get used. We're going to go looking for this information. So we better burn this into long-term memory circuits, so to speak, in the brain. And let's use that pathway right now, which will strengthen and enhance that pathway for future recall. So we know this intuitively. Flashcards work, for example. Why do flashcards work? Because we're testing ourselves. And so at the end of anything, I'm trying to get anyone to remember. If I'm doing a science of happiness workshop or an employee engagement workshop, I test people every 20 minutes or so. Now stress, excess stress is not great for learning. So I tell people, this is a casual self-test, no anxiety needed. But the key question is, what have you heard? What's most useful to you? How can you apply this? And that signals the brain, okay, this information is gonna get used, let's store it. Very briefly, the, the frequency and the timing of testing matters. So the data seems to indicate, very roughly speaking, good times to test after learning something are right away, two days, two weeks, and two months later. And then you're really reinforcing, I'm going to use this information, let's hold on to it. That's a good point. I have to say, actually, you mentioning flashcards, from my experience of learning languages, Flashcards are a fantastic way of really reinforcing uh, knowledge surrounding vocabulary. I found them to be very, very effective in that sense. Now, another point as well, you said get emotional. Um, we do not remember boring things. How can you get uh, emotional when trying to retain and recall information? Like all I can think about is maybe someone just shouting these things. And I should say that in our email conversation beforehand, you put get emotional and Scott put emotional in all capitals. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I love. But uh, yeah, I'd be interested to know how we can get emotional while trying to learn something. So essentially, the brain does not remember boring things because emotion signals to us that it matters, right? So earlier, I gave the example of, of you and I leaving our home valley and seeing a, a mountain lion, a cougar on a mountaintop. I, I'm in Oregon, where we actually have those in the wild, right? So if you and I saw a chipmunk or a squirrel, uh, unless we're going to hunt that and eat that for dinner, it's not that emotionally important to us, right? It's like, oh, there's a squirrel. There's hundreds of squirrels in the woods. Who cares, right? Don't need to remember where the squirrel is. There's a mountain lion. It's like, <gasps> mountain lion, that can eat us. Let's quietly back away. And you watch this way and I'll watch that way and make sure it doesn't come this way. And it shoots adrenaline into, into our systems. It signals our body that there's something emotionally salient happening here. And those things we need to remember, our life depends on it, right? Now, there's a tricky balance here, Sam, because excess stress excess stress can interfere with memory. We can get these memory blocks from something that is just too traumatic, too painful to remember. And in fact, part of why meditation, going back to meditation helps, is being relaxed generally helps us learn. So there's a bit of a weird dichotomy here. In general, relaxation, meditation, good for learning, super high excess stress, bad for learning. But the peak end rule of memory tells us that memories are not created equally. In this podcast, in a class you're taking, in a workshop you go to, you won't remember everything the same. You'll remember the most emotionally salient information and the ending better than anything else. So how do you get emotional? First of all, if you're a teacher as I am, I mean, I'm, I'm a speaker more than a formal teacher, but I consider myself a teacher, if I said, okay, everyone, we're going to look at the science of happiness at work today. 
First off, let's look at subduing stuff. I mean, if I were just completely passionless about it and boring about it, no one would remember anything I say. And if I'm like, people, this can totally change your life. You can choose more happiness at work. You can learn how to remember better and have your mind be right there for you when you need it. If I bring emotion to it, if I care about it, you're going to care about it. And if you care about it, you're going to remember it. Yeah, I think we can all relate to having those boring teachers uh, at school or university and the fun ones. And to be honest, if you ask me to recall both of them, I can easily recall the fun ones and the boring ones. Wow, I just remember the sensation of being bored. I don't actually remember their names or, or them at all, really. So yeah, I, I can relate to that for sure. Um, so there's two more points that I'd love to go over. Two other tactics that our listeners might be familiar with is repetition and spreading out learning over time. You briefly mentioned that when it came to testing, but how can this be practically applied in a real life situation? Say, for example, learning a language or studying for a test. Yeah, so very simply, repetition causes learning. Repetition causes learning. Repetition causes learning, right? So there's a reason we repeat a phone number to ourselves or anything else that we wanna remember, it works. But at the same time, learning happens better spread out in time and space. So if you want to study for an exam, it is much better to study 20 minutes a day for five days than to study 100 minutes in one day. Cramming does not work nearly as well as spreading it out. My daughter is learning piano. We try to get her to practice every day because she learns much better practicing 15, 20 minutes every day than a couple of hours once on the weekend. So again, spread it out in time, but fascinatingly to me, spread it out in space as well. So part of why I love my job, Sam, is I get to, to read these very amusing studies. So in one study, they take a bunch of people down to the ocean and dress them all in wetsuits, and they teach everybody the same information on the beach. And then they randomly divide the group in two, and half of the group goes into the water in their wetsuits. The other half stays on the beach again, and they're all taught the same thing again to help them learn the same material. And then later, everyone is tested, and those who learned on the beach and in the water learned better, recall better than those who learned just on the beach. So what does that mean? It means if you want to learn a language or study for an exam, you're better off learning in your living room and your kitchen and your office than always learning in the library. Spread it out in time and space and your learning and remembering will be more effective. I'll have to try that for the language learning. I'm currently trying to learn Turkish, so I'll definitely have to start doing it in all the rooms in my house. Excellent. Just the living room on the sofa. But, um, and outside too, for example. So Yeah, everywhere. Uh, cool. So I have one last question to you, and it's really quite open-ended. But are there any other tactics or methods of memorization that you want to share with our listeners before we go? Well, I'll try to be really quick about this because there are several more that I find are interesting. First of all, smell is tied directly to memory. Many of us may have had that experience where we smell something and a flood of memories come back. Why does that work? Well, smell is unique in the human senses. Most human senses, sight, hearing, etc., go to the hypothalamus and get rooted to other parts of the brain. Smell has direct connections to memory centers such as the hippocampus. And smell is your only sense that directly touches the world, so to speak. You have neuron endings inside your nose that smell the world. So there seems to be an especially strong connection between smell and memory. How can you use this? Take some essential oil, you know, lavender, whatever, smell it while you're studying, smelling, smell it while you're learning Turkish, and then take a whiff of the same thing when you're going to Turkey or taking a test and you need to recall that information. Smell is not the only one. Vision is excellent for memory. We remember things that we can visualize better. Uh, one caution for people unrelated to all that is doorways. There's a very real doorway effect. I bet everybody listening to me in the past month has walked into a room, said, why did I come in here? Then you go back where you were and you're like, oh, we have the scissors, the stapler. I was going to get the scissors and the stapler in the other room. So doorways signal us that we can forget things because throughout most of human history, information was location specific. 
We needed to know that where the bear was in the valley, we needed to know, to know where the mountain lion was near the mountain. And we didn't need to know either in the other location. So when we go through a doorway, it signals the brain, never mind, let it go. So beware doorways. And again, learn on both sides of the door to overcome that. Excellent. Well, Scott, if people want to keep track of you and uh, your social media, or your website, or reach out, what's the best way for them to do that? Thank you, Sam. I am on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter as Happy Brain Science or Scott Crab on Twitter. The best way to, to follow what we're doing at Happy Brain Science is to visit our site, happybrainscience.com, and sign up for our mailing list, which will get people a free happiness starter kit, as we call it, a couple of books and things. And then about once a month, we send tips on the science of of well-being at work, thriving at work, getting the best from your mind, your memory, your happiness, your engagement, and more at work. And we would be honored and delighted to, to help people live, live better work lives and therefore better lives out there. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining me today, Scott. Thanks for having me, Sam. Hopefully you're enjoying the show. And if you are, make sure you subscribe and never miss an episode. You can find us on all your usual podcast sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, and a whole lot more, including YouTube. And we want to hear what you think, so be sure to leave us a review. Just search Brains Bite Back wherever you get your podcasts. Marissa, I am really happy to have you on here. And I say that to pretty much all of my guests. Uh, <laughs> and I do mean it because I, I choose the guests that I have on here. But at the same time, this is something that's very close to my heart because I love languages and this is something that I've developed over the past couple of years. So to have you on is a real treat and I'm very eager to learn what you have to share. So would you. <laughs> yeah, would you be able to start off by telling us what languages you speak and how did you learn them? Sure. Well, I speak, a, I, I would say a handful of languages, right? It always depends on what somebody's definition of speak is. So I'm Polish American. When I was a kid, I, as a small child, I grew up speaking both Polish and English at home. But if you live in the US or you know anything about the US, you might know that there's a really big push for English here, uh, for English only schools, for English only services, even though it's not technically the official language of the country. So by the time I was in high school, I had mostly forgotten my Polish, which was my native language. Uh, and I'd also bombed out of Spanish class. <laughs> so I'll preface this all with saying that I spent a lot of my, my teens, my early adult life thinking I was a language failure. But eventually I decided, you know what? Living in the US, it's so important to speak a second language, especially Spanish. I mean, we have so many Spanish speakers here. I was missing out on professional opportunities. I was missing out on personal connections. So I decided I would just up and move to Mexico and with enough time and enough effort within years, maybe I'd, maybe I'd stand a chance at learning Spanish. Uh, and it turned out it was actually a lot easier than I feared it would be. So I learned Spanish and immersion in Mexico, fell in love with the language learning process. I just, just became totally enamored as I demystified it for myself. And then mostly using the internet and meeting some new people and making some friends, I learned French, Catalan, and Portuguese in Mexico where I was living. So I would study a little bit online and maybe go to a French expat cafe and try my best, or I ran into a Catalan cultural center and basically just tried, <laughs> it's a lot of trying my best with help of the internet. Same with Portuguese. Uh, there was a Brazilian community where I lived in Mexico and everybody just was so warm, so welcoming that through study and then some DIY immersion where I was in the city, I managed to pull it together. And since then, I've also relearned quite, I would say most of my original Polish. I'm really proud of that. That's been entirely through the internet and with my grandparents. And now I'm studying German, which has been its own challenge. I have no contact with any German speakers. I haven't been able to do any immersion at all, uh, but that's also been a fun new way to, to take on languages. Awesome. And how would you rank those languages? So if you were to go through them from your best to your worst, what order yes. would they be in? Um, I would say I'm, I'm functionally bilingual in English and Spanish. I can express myself 
without hesitation in either of them pretty equally. And then my French and Catalan are fluent. I can read books. I can chat with friends. I don't have to think too much. Um, my Polish and my Portuguese, I can have conversations. Um, I enjoy them. Reading is a bit of a challenge. I can't always understand, let's say, a business podcast or a, a really specific documentary. Um, but they still get the job done. And then German is just kind of toddling along. So hopefully soon I'll have my first German conversation, but I haven't quite gotten there yet. Awesome. And how old were you out of interest when you went to Mexico and this kind of epiphany happened that you love languages? Because I know that uh, your ability to learn a language is kind of hindered to some extent the older you get, or at least it becomes harder. I'd be interested to know at what age you kind of had this epiphany and you started snowballing with these languages. Yes, that is one of the big things that everybody says is, oh, but you must have started when you were young, when you, as you get older, it becomes impossible, an adult can't become fluent, like a native in a language. And I didn't start with Spanish until I was 27, which at that point was probably, you know, 15 years of, of monolingualism in my life. I, I would say I've, I'm close to native-like, not quite, and that process took about three years because one of the great language learning myths, which maybe we'll go into later, is that adults learn very slowly. Adults actually tend to learn faster than children do under the right circumstances. Wow, that's inspiring because I completely relate to your story. I had a similar experience in myself. Uh, well, I learned Japanese as a teenager just because my friends were doing it and then I fell in love with it and did it at university, but I've pretty much forgotten most of it. However, if I hear some Japanese, I'll remember random sentences and. Uh, I once said to a Japanese friend, she was trying to say something, and then I perfectly said the sentence, but I had no idea yeah. what it meant. It was just <laughs> in my brain. But I didn't really ca carry it on, and uh, into my early 20s, I didn't really have any language abilities until I started learning Spanish, and that developed into a love for the culture. And then I, I moved to Latin America, and yeah, I picked up Spanish, and I've been working on French. I did 175 uh -huh. days on French and Duolingo. <laughs> congratulations on that streak thank you but then i i'm i'm currently about to reach 200 days on duolingo but i swapped mm. to turkish because um my girlfriend's turkish and even though i don't have much of an interest in actually speaking turkish for like the practical sense it would be awesome mm. for us to have our own secret language to to speak yes. in, since turkish is not very widely spoken almost at all and I, I think that that's one of the the really lovely things once you become confident in learning your first second language and in both of our cases spanish mm. you're like oh i can just do this i can play i can try this out i can speak a little bit i can love the culture and it becomes a lot more of an like a process and a, and a really just super cool part of your life that doesn't have to feel as pessimistic as I think a lot of adults might feel about learning a language. Yeah, it's encouraging. And I also think that the important thing is to understand that growth, it doesn't happen immediately. And once you recognize that and you accept that and that you realize mm -hmm. that you're going to chip away at something yeah. and just stay focused, then it gets easier. But um, I'd love to know, before this call, you mentioned to me that there are two secret weapons of polygots, uh, space repetition and active recall. Can you explain to our listeners what these are and how they can use them? Yeah, so there's an increasing amount of really amazing linguistic studies and really good data on how humans learn and memorize. And two of the things that I have seen many polyglots and, and many hyperglots really used to their advantage are the, the things you just mentioned, active recall and spaced repetition. So I, <laughs> I hate to do this because a lot of people love Duolingo. If you have fun on Duolingo, cool, you do you. Uh, but I do want to use Duolingo as a comparison to those two methods just so people can better understand what they are in contrast. So active recall is basically, you, so you learn a piece of grammar or you learn a few new words. The idea behind active recall is that you don't have a word bank, you don't have a prompt, you're not re-looking over your notes, you're from scratch trying to actively remember those things that you learned. So, you know, maybe you're in, in, you're in real life and you just learned the names of some office supplies and you're looking at a pencil and you have to think, okay, what is this? How do I know this name? You don't have a word bank in real life, you don't have hints in real life, you don't have notes you can look over in real life. 
So the, the goal of active recall is to get off those training wheels that uh, many apps like Duolingo might give you and just slowly practice on the fly. And I'll say it in Polish, um, being like, okay, this pencil, this pencil, ah, ołówek. And building those connections in a much stronger way than a word bank or then relearning your notes or relooking over your notes would let you. You don't have those things in real life. So we want to practice a more real life situation. The second thing is spaced repetition. The idea, and Duolingo has built some of this in uh, over the past, I think, year or two, which has been really cool. The idea behind spaced repetition is that once you learn something, it's not in your head forever. You, you will forget it if you don't refresh it. And that can be a normal part of language learning, but you do want to go back and refresh it so it's not totally gone. I mean, if any of your listeners have, you know, they studied French or Spanish or any language in, in middle school, high school, they probably have forgotten most of that, if not almost all of that. And simply the, the question is because they haven't revisited it, they haven't practically applied it. So one of the things a lot of great language learners do is they come up with some sort of system. So every so often, maybe days, weeks, months, they go back and they revisit stuff. One great app for both of those things is called Anki. Anki is a flashcard app. Uh, you build your own flashcards, you add sound, you add images, all of that. It's super, super popular with polyglots where depending on, on whether or not you remember when the flashcard comes up, depending on whether or not you remember the piece of grammar or the new word, you might see that card again in an hour, two days, three days, and eventually after you, you nail it a whole bunch of times in a row, maybe a few months, uh, maybe a few years. And just doing those two things, just actively recalling something you learned and doing that active recall with space, but, but over and over again, is really how you build these long-term, super strong connections, regardless of what platform you want to use for actually learning. So if you want to actually learn on, on Duolingo or with a textbook or with a teacher or just through immersion, great, go for it. But definitely keep actively recalling, take off those training wheels as soon as you can. Don't get discouraged if you get it wrong, that's part of the process and keep reviewing with more intensity for harder things and less intensity for easier things. Okay, and now this Anki app, you got me curious. Is it a, like a freemium service or do you have to pay for it? Is it behind a paywall? How does it work? Oh, there's, a, there's a couple apps. I say Anki because that's the one that's the most popular. Um, if people are familiar with Quizlet, that's another one. Anki on Droid, it's free. On iPhones, I believe it's like $25 or something. It's a, I think it's a freeware. And you can also sign up for free an account online. And it's really, really rudimentary. It's a super, it's an ugly app. <laughs> like it's a very ugly app. You compare it to, to these awesome ones like Memorize of Duolingo, Drops. It's not cute. But it, if anybody's curious about it, go check out some Enki tutorials on YouTube. It takes a little bit of a, of a knack to get into, um, but it is largely free or it's a one-time payment if you're on iPhone. And it's, it takes, it, there's a learning curve because of that, but it's a, it's a great thing. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. So another point uh, you're on here to discuss is how people can apply memory championship techniques to their own lives. But before we get into this, can you quickly explain what is a memory championship and then tell us about these techniques? Yes, there's a couple of different ones, but basically the idea behind all the memory championships is human beings doing absolutely ridiculous memory feats. So memorizing a shuffled deck of cards. Imagine, imagine sitting down and having to memorize the order of two or three decks of cards in a set amount of time, uh, seeing a bunch of pictures of people's faces and having to memorize as many individual details about these imaginary people as you can, uh, memorizing a string of absolutely random digits. They're basically a competition to see who can do the most rote memorization. And what's interesting is how crafty people have really gotten when preparing for the memory championships. I mean, it, it just looks surreal, but the techniques people use for them are really concrete and can be practiced and cultivated by basically anyone. I'll talk about it right now, but a great book on the memory championships is called Moonwalking with Einstein. It's probably the most well-known and it's also a very fun read. But one of the, the really exciting, or let's say two of the really exciting techniques that come out of memory championships, one is mind palaces or mind mansions, which was popularized by the BBC's Sherlock series. Another is mnemonics. 
So we'll start with mnemonics. Mnemonics is basically you see a new word in a new language. And I'll talk to you about how to, how to apply them to language learning. But in mnemonics, you come up with a new word in a new language. Let's say the Spanish word bandera. What could this word mean? Bandera. Okay, well, you look it up and bandera means flag. So how can I remember that bandera means flag? Because it sounds so different from the English. Well, I could remember that band, there's a band under a flag, band era. Okay, there's a band from the hair metal era under a flag, band era, bandera. And so creating these mental hooks that make you think of something really specific or weird or maybe sound really weird is awesome for, for annihilating vocab. And the more comfortable you get with a certain word, soon your brain will just know bandera means flag. It won't need that weird little scene you've created. And you can do this with a number of languages uh, in a number of creative ways. And it's one of my favorite ways to make sure vocab sticks in my head. The other technique I grabbed from the memory championships, which I love, is called the mind palace, like I mentioned. It's a little weird to explain, but what you're going to do, and this is kind of my, my little quick tutorial because it's easier to explain in a tutorial and have listeners kind of play along than explain in the abstract. So I would invite listeners to think of your childhood home. Think of what the rooms look like, what furniture is there, how the light is, and really feel yourself in that different room. The classic mind palace is for remembering, let's say, a shopping list. Let's say we're going to do it with a shopping list. This is a great way to practice it. Okay, so today when I go to the grocery store, I need, uh, let's just say, butter, garlic, and bread. Those are the three things I need at a grocery store. Well, what I'm going to do is in my mind's eye, closing my eyes, imagining this, I'm going to place in the front doorway of my childhood home a stick of butter. In my mind's eye, like really smell that butter, feel it maybe melting in the warm summer sun. If you lived in a cold place, maybe feeling it soak from some cold rain, really imagine that stick of butter in the doorway. After that, step a foot into the house. You remember like the smelliest garlic you can. There's a big giant bulb of garlic. Really make it remember that, that that garlic, smell it, see it next to the butter, think about what the, the sound of that crunching garlic would be. And then after that, you're gonna do the same thing with a piece of bread. Now, if you do this sincerely today while you're listening to this podcast, by tomorrow, you will still remember that you have butter, garlic, and bread in that hallway or in that in that entryway it makes this this visualization of objects is so amazingly sticky our brains are so good at remembering this stuff one of the great ways that i've seen memory palaces translated into language learning is with grammatical gender now we're getting pretty nerdy here so <laughs> i hope no, that go for it. i love it <laughs> I hope that listeners are still are still excited even if they they haven't studied languages yet and they're just curious um but i use a massive memory palace for German grammar. If you're not familiar with German or non-English European languages, many languages have what we call grammatical gender. Basically, some languages in German have a feminine ending, one have a masculine, some others have a neuter. Don't worry about the details, just know that it really affects the grammar. So it's very, very important that I remember if a lamp, a desk, a table, uh, a house, which one of those three designations they are. And so this is something that I've seen a couple people do. Basically, I've, I've designated my childhood hometown, my university town, and the town that I currently live in as neuter, feminine, and masculine. And using memory palaces, I have been able to put different objects in different towns that will totally cement my understanding of this very important but very abstract grammar rule. And it's one of the most, in my experience with other language learners, one of the most foolproof ways to remember something. Now, I know this is a little abstract, but just like we said at the beginning, I mean, once you get into language learning, you can really have fun with your own brain, with other cultures, with other people, experiment with all these different techniques and theories about education, about memory. Uh, and it's, it's an absolute joy to, to play with.
Yeah, I'm definitely going to make use of it. To be honest, I was actually first exposed to this, like you said, in Sherlock, and I hadn't really put much thought or knowledge into it. In fact, I think at the time when I saw that, I didn't even realize it was a real thing. I thought that was just something unique to that character. But I am very keen to try this out, especially as I'm learning new languages at the moment. And as for your mnemonics um, mention, what you mentioned there, you're absolutely right. I, I think that I've come across that in a few cases unintentionally like for example recently in turkish i learned uh günaydın which means like good morning but to me that sounds like good night then mm -hmm. so it sounds like they're mm -hmm. saying good night then but it means good morning so i've been able to remember it just uh, just from that and i think it relates back to something in psychology that exists which is like levels of processing theory which essentially means the more thought you put into something or the more abstract and memorable something is the more you're likely to remember it so obviously like with your butter and garlic and bread example there you're putting a lot of thought into really remembering it remembering the smell remembering it visually and that allows you to recall it more effectively yeah that's that's absolutely part of it i've also heard it theorized that because of evolution, humans have really incredible spatial memory, visual attention to the habitats and the places we're in. And that by transforming this abstract word into a tangible thing in a tangible space, our, our old brains are, are a lot better at it. But I think it's a combination of those two things and probably a few other things that psychi uh, psychologists haven't, haven't discovered yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is my last point, and I think we touched upon it a little bit when we discussed uh, age and language learning. But what are some of the outdated myths about language learning that annoy you the most? <laughs> I'll try to condense it because I think that this is, and you've probably experienced this too, and I'm sure, you know, I know there's an educational podcast, plenty of, of ambitious learners and professionals have too. When you announce to somebody, I'm going to do this great ambitious project, everybody just lobs their own fears and myths at you. It's, it's exhausting. And I think the biggest one really is that it's impossible for an adult to learn a language, or maybe they can learn it to a certain point, but after that, they'll never have the right accent. They'll never become native-like. And the, there's absolutely no data to support that. A lot of the journalism comes from these critical period studies, the critical period during which language acquisition is a bit more organic or can be, a little bit easier through just immersion but honestly it's the the product of a lot of lazy reporting that yes a child from you know age one to eight, 15 16 if they're exposed to this language they will have amazing instincts they will have in most cases an amazing accent uh, they will have a really great command for things but actually adults given formal instruction in much shorter time can learn learn languages really well, including with amazing accents, including with huge professional vocab. Uh, the, the methods they need are a little bit different, but there's no data to think that adults can't learn a language amazingly. Another one, and this is largely the fault of, of marketers who are in the language learning industry, especially online, is that you can learn a language in five minutes a day with some app or that, you know, you can learn, oh, this is the worst from YouTube. You can learn, become fluent in two months and six months and something like that. When most governments and most large institutions agree that depending on the language, you're going to need between 600 and a little over a thousand hours of learning as an adult. And that's doable. It's absolutely doable for most lifestyles, for most people, for most incomes. But there's a lot of marketing trying to convince people that with this one crazy technique, you can learn a language in six months in just five minutes a day. Uh, and unfortunately, it does take more effort than that. And there is no magic bullet. And I think probably the third one, which is a little more subtle, is that it's, it's a little self-sabotaging. It's that, oh, you know, I've been, I've been playing with these apps. I've been working on these books. I've been taking these classes. I'm not ready to talk yet. I just... I can't, I can't really have a sentence. I can't really have a conversation. I'll have to wait until I talk. And unfortunately, the best way to get good at talking <laughs> is by talking. I am a big believer of, of start with your baby talk. Start with half-formed sentences and wildly gesturing with your hands and, and drawing notes if you need to and, and 
playing this wild game of charades, but start talking early. There are plenty of amazing tutors and exchange partners online who will not be bothered, who will not think you're stupid. If you start gesturing wildly uh, for, for all of my languages, that's been one of my favorite points of language learning actually is, is the very beginning where you sound like an idiot. <laughs> you feel like an idiot, but you're just trying to get any sort of words out because every time you hit a word or you, you say a sentence mostly correctly, it's going to feel like such a big victory. So I think that's probably the, the third one. Yeah, I can completely relate to that. I remember when I started speaking Spanish, uh, I was so focused on trying to get everything right. And then pretty early on, I saw somewhere that when you start to speak a language, one of the biggest misconceptions is the idea of I need to be able to speak this perfectly to be mm -hmm. able to speak this when actually your goal shouldn't be perfect grammar or perfect pronunciation or any of that. The goal should be communication. As long as you're able to convey what you want to say, it doesn't matter how you do it because the rest of it will kind of follow from then onwards. And um, I've definitely made that like the number one goal now when yeah. learning languages just to be understood, even if I don't get it right, uh, just to be understood is the main goal. And then everything else will come yeah. from that. Absolutely. I've heard it likened to, especially in the early stages, likened to a game of volleyball where you're both just trying to keep the ball passing back and forth over the net. Sometimes it's a net ball. It's okay. You can reserve. And if somebody else doesn't want to play with you, that's fine. <laughs> You'll find somebody else. It doesn't have to be as high stakes as people fear it is. I can really just be two people trying their best and, and hopefully some fun comes out of it at that early stage. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. Marissa, if people want to reach out to you or keep up with you, how can they do that? Um, well, my, my personal Instagram studygram where I share a lot of great language learning stuff is Multilingual Marissa. Uh, I also blog at relearnalanguage.com. At relearnalanguage.com, people can find some free immersion resources. I also have a free at-home immersion course if anybody thinks that learning languages through immersion is something that they're interested in. Uh, and yeah, those two, those, those are the best two places, I think. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today, Marissa. Thanks so much for having me. Growing a company has many hurdles from securing funding to expanding your business capabilities to ranking better on search. Each business challenge is uniquely complex. The solution to these challenges is growth-focused digital PR and marketing, and that is where our sponsor, Publicize, comes in. Publicize sets itself apart from traditional PR companies. It doesn't charge large retainers or turns out press releases whether you've got a newsworthy announcement or not. Publicize builds your business's online presence and gets high-quality PR and media coverage for startups and entrepreneurs who are priced out of a broken PR industry. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bike Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. That's publicize.co slash BBB. This is the end of today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this and you want to hear more episodes just like it, then follow and subscribe to Brains Bite Back wherever you get your podcasts. We're also available on YouTube under the channel of our publication, The Sociable. Just search Brains Bite Back and you'll find all of our episodes there. We really love hearing what you have to say. So leave us a review on iTunes or on any other podcasting platform to let us know what you think. You can also reach out on Twitter at, at The Sociable. And finally, go to sociable.co where you can find all our episodes and plenty of articles on topics just like this. Thanks again for joining us and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Stay healthy.